morning. Yeah, how is everyone? Great, great. Awesome. Good, Good. wonderful. Um, yeah, great. Hey, it's awesome to see all of you guys here uh, this morning. If, uh, if this is your first time, again, hey, welcome, man. We're really glad that you are um, here. There's been a little, a few changes made in the room. I heard some people commenting about we've moved our uh, our curtain like from over here to over here um, in preparation for uh, classes to start back in the next couple of weeks, and that's kind of anticipating having to over the next uh, over the next little bit add some chairs to the space. And so um, it's a little bit different. You are a very observant crowd. Um, I was awesome to, to hear you guys making comments about that. So. Um, Yeah, I'm really glad that you guys are all here. Uh, We're excited about uh, the next couple of weeks here at Christ the King and all the opportunities that are going kind of to be at the the table in terms of service um, to the campus and to the community as um, it's almost like when August rolls around, like a shot of adrenaline is induced into the heart of this uh, this community. So um, that's going to be exciting. It's going to be neat. So um, we are in Mark chapter 7. Uh, We're starting Mark chapter 7. We were in Mark chapter 6 for a long time. Uh, For those of you that have been with us uh, throughout the summer, it seems like we spent all summer in chapter 6. And so we are uh, perhaps turning the page, uh, like literally for some of you, like we're going to a new page and uh, we're starting Mark chapter 7 this morning. So it's a great passage, man. We just see a lot within this passage um, that just addresses the, the issue of cleanliness um, within the heart, right? And so this is kind of one of those passages that um, it's a lot of fun to walk through, but like depending on what your worldview is as you walk into the room and how you understand uh, the the human heart to exist within itself, uh, it can be shocking, right? It can be shocking. And so um, I'm excited. I'm excited to begin this this walk through this passage this morning. Great time of fellowship this morning, hanging out and drinking coffee. We do that at 10.30 each week. Um, and so, again, we would invite you to come and to join uh, us in that time, get to meet uh, some other people that maybe you sit next to or across the room from on Sunday mornings. Uh, it's a really, really, really great time. And we had donuts this morning. And so that was, yeah, Miss Lori brought donuts this morning. So that was legit. We're super grateful for that. So, um, all right. Mark chapter 7. Last week, as we concluded our time in chapter 6, we talked about two big ideas, right, that we saw within that passage. We see within that closing portion of Mark chapter 6, the availability of Christ and then the blessing of Christ. The availability of Christ and then the blessing of Christ. We see see, uh, the result of faith at work in the hearts and in the lives of people. Really encouraging time together in God's Word last week. This week, as we go into Mark chapter 7, we see Jesus addressing the legalistic hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Okay, like I said in the beginning, this is like a dagger to the heart. This is going right at the hypocrisy of the religious elite. And it it also stirs within us this recognition and this existence perhaps of hypocrisy within our own lives, within our own minds, within our own hearts. And so again, um, I pray that this would be a really beneficial time of um, conviction and encouragement from, uh, from God's word this morning. Jesus will address the legalistic hypocrisy of the religious leaders, and then he's going to pull back the curtain a little bit. 
Yeah, he's going he's gonna to pull back the curtain a little bit on what really defiles a person and what it is exactly that is most in need of being made new, okay? And so when we talk about, and we have over the past few weeks, the human condition, right? We are introduced yet again this morning um, into the effects of Genesis chapter 3 in the hearts and the minds and the lives of each and every one of us. Right, And we're going to see this dialogue, this back and forth, well, really just a, a, a back and then a, just a back. Like a back, not really a back and forth. There's no real response. However that lays itself out, everybody's like getting confused now. Right, But it's, it's this, here's a question, and then here's how Jesus addresses this. And then he kind of begins addressing it more with the crowd who is, uh, who is around him. And so we're going to be looking at this issue of cleanliness this morning from Mark chapter 7. Okay, this issue of, of cleanliness, and we're going to see a confrontation and then a correction. Okay, a confrontation and then a correction. Jesus confronting the religious leaders in light of and in response to their uh, confrontation of him, and then he's going to bring about um, this, this newness of, of, of thought, right? Radical, radical thought. Uh, both within the context of what we read here in Mark chapter 7, as Mark writes to his original audience, and then to us here in 2017. This, this is, for every generation, a radical idea, a radical thought. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. And so let us go to Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and working through verse 24. This is a massive section for us. I talked to Walt earlier in the week and we were kind of talking about where we were going and I said we might do all of Mark chapter 7. Like that's what I thought we might be doing um, kind of as the week got started and then we pulled back a little bit. That was a bit too ambitious. Okay. <laughs> but um, we are in a large section of Mark this morning. Um, this, is a, this is a great example of the benefits of exposition and structure um, as it is displayed within God's word, right? That all of this fits together, and it's really going to dovetail super cleanly with what we see next week. And so make sure you're back next week, right? Okay, here we go. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes, who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and uh, dying couches, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And so here's the issue that's being presented from the religious leaders to Jesus. Verse 6, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish 
your tradition. Well, what does that look like? Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And so here we get a little bit of insight, right? What are we ultimately talking about? We're not talking about substances from the outside that enter into the stomach, right? They bring and, and make a person uh, unclean. But we're talking about issues of the heart. Thus he declared all foods clean, verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. The list goes on and on and on and on. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Verse 24, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre, and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning and for your spirit um, who brings us into uh, enlightenment and understanding, who opens our eyes and our hearts to understand what you would have to say to us this morning. We pray that we would see together as we're gathered this morning the need that exists within each and every one of us for clean hearts, and that we might hold fast to the good news of the gospel as our only hope for joy and salvation and sustaining this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So how do we begin this passage? Well, we begin with this confrontation between the religious leaders and Jesus, right? Last week, we reaffirmed the two types of people that seem to be found gathering most often around Jesus. What are those two types of people? Well, first, the broken, right? The, the desperate, the marginalized, and the oppressed, right? This, this camp of people that seems to be most aware of their condition, and as a result, they display this sense of desperateness before Christ. Think about the miraculous works that we've seen Jesus, Jesus do, work up until this point, right? It oftentimes is centered around people who recognize this, this situation that brings them into a posture of despair, 
desperation. We can do nothing for ourselves. We can do nothing for our children. We can do nothing as it relates to the conditions, the physical conditions around us. We're relying on you to do something, and Jesus does. But there's this other group, right, that we oftentimes see gathered around Jesus as well. And this group is made up not of broken, desperate, marginalized, and oppressed people, but instead religious elitists. Right? Guys who, who perceive themselves as having it all together. In this case, men from Jerusalem, big hitters from Jerusalem who have come into town to, to conversate, to follow Jesus around, and to search for cause to criticize him. They're not coming exploring the deity and the miraculous teachings and works of Jesus, even though those things are at this point not even up for debate. Okay, nobody's coming into town to figure out how Jesus is pulling off this smoke and mirrors trickery, okay? They're coming into town to seek out and to search for cause to criticize him, to condemn him. They're extremely annoyed with Jesus. Okay, let's understand the heart condition. Let's understand what's going on between Jesus and this particular group of people that now is pursuing after him. They are annoyed with Jesus. Well, why? Why are they annoyed with Jesus? Well, well, because Jesus refuses to walk within the lines of what has been deemed right and appropriate practice by those in positions of influence, okay? He refuses to, uh, we might say, walk the party line, right? He's introducing these, these, these not necessarily new ideas, but simply clarifying old truths for the people, and it's bringing about this division, right, this power struggle, more on, on the half of the religious elitists who are seeing their power begin to diminish, Right? Because you've got this authoritative figure, Jesus, that's moving about throughout the region and like masses of people are gathering together to see these works that are accomplished by him. Two weeks ago, we saw that there was a crowd that was ready to seize Jesus, to take him, and to make him king by force. This is what's going on with Jesus. He is, again and again, and again, rejecting the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees, while at the same time, there's another side of this coin. It's not only an outright rejection of, of, the, of the things of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? These things that they are uh, lifting up, that they're holding up, that they're holding people accountable to, while at the same time rejecting the law of the Lord which we're going to see later on in this passage. But Jesus is again and again and again presenting this scandalous message of grace. And so let's understand this, that the message of Jesus, the message of grace is indeed a scandalous message. It remains so today, and it was to be that in this day as, as well. And the scandalous message of grace, along with Right, this this almost uh, this almost seizing of power from the religious leaders, the elitists of the day, has caused the Pharisees and the Sadducees to reject him, to seek to trap him, and finally to conspire to kill him. This is what's going on between these two groups. And in verses 1 and 2, we see this group of men around Jesus prepared to confront him. Because his disciples 
failure to practice the ceremonial act of hand washing before eating, an act that in their minds deems them unclean. In Mark Mark, uh, 7, verses 3 and 4, Mark takes the time to explain for his Gentile readers who would have been unfamiliar with these practices exactly what is going on here. And so that's exactly what we see in verses 3 and 4. This explanation for Gentile readers, Mark's audience, that they might understand the issue of cleanliness that we're even talking about here. So, so let's kind of dive in and let's, let's explore this a little bit. What do we need to know and what do we learn based off what we see in verses 3 and 4 about these traditions? Well, here's some things that we learn, okay? That these traditions, the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders, are not laws, but they are additions to, okay? What, what might be best described as a fence around the the law, okay, to to prevent anyone from getting close to the edge. I think about it like this, Um, the the White House in D.C., right? You've got like this huge, massive fence that surrounds it to deter any would-be crazies from like jumping over the fence as if the men with guns weren't enough, right? And so here we've got this fence that's being placed around the law that is designed to prevent anyone from getting close to the edge, falling into, into danger. There are traditions designed to protect God's word and assist his people in keeping it. Okay, well, let's, let's stay with me. Let's explore the background of these things for, for just a moment. Such as, what's another example? We know we're dealing with this issue of uncleanliness here, but what's another one? Well, another one might be that on Sabbath, um, it would be a, a tradition not to look into a mirror, right? Because if it's Sabbath and you're not to do any work, right, in obedience to the law of the Lord, and you look into a mirror, you might be tempted to... I don't know, like get a haircut or like shave or like, I don't know, like something like that. You know, fix yourself up. It might, be, it might be an encouragement towards that. And so on Sabbath, we are going to stay away from mirrors so that we don't fall into the temptation of breaking God's law. These are practices that were began with truly admirable aspirations to know God's will for specific situations. But here's what's happened over time. Okay, over over time, they've become more binding than the law itself. And we see that displayed in this passage. Then this passage practices that began to focus more on externals as opposed to to the internal that the law was designed to bring us into a greater awareness of. Does that make sense? It became more about external practice and less about the heart of the issue itself, the heart of obedience and submission to God's law and submission to God's testimony, submission to God's word. Practices that began to focus more on specific actions and less on the condition of the human heart, which we will see Jesus mention in detail within this passage. And so maybe that helps us understand the tradition that we're seeing, we're seeing this issue revolve around here within the context of this passage. So the next question that we might explore in relation to this is this, right? What does it look like in the context of this conversation that Jesus is having here? Well, here we're all about this issue of hand washing. So um, imagine for a moment that a Jew 
goes to uh, goes to town. Okay, goes to uh, the market, a very busy area with lots of people bustling about. You can imagine that in a, in a given town, if there's one market, that lots of people, lots of different people are gathering in this area. And it would not be altogether uncommon, as you are familiar with, to rub shoulders and elbows and hands and to bump up against one another in such a crowded, congested, crazy area. Now imagine for a moment that this Jew who is at the market at this particular time, it's crazy, it's busy, there's lots of people, comes into contact with Gentiles or Samaritans. Well, when they got home, the issue that we're talking about here, that we're seeing unpacked here, is the the issue of going home and washing themselves, their pots, their cups, their copper vessels, everything, because they had come into contact with someone who is deemed unclean. And so having come in contact with this person, it's, it would be tradition to go home and to, and to clean oneself. Now, you can imagine how this begins to evolve, right? How it begins to snowball effect. And before you know it, all you're doing is 24-7 washing, right? Because you're, oh, I came into something unclean. I got to go home and I got to wash myself. I got to be, be ritually clean. I got to prepare myself. It would be exhausting. And that's to some degree what had developed here. And to reject this passage was to risk bringing upon yourself serious penalty. One commentator pointed back to a specific rabbi who who ate bread before he washed his hands, and as a result, he was excommunicated. And so this is a serious issue that had floated to the surface that began to, to dictate one's actions to the point that the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders are confronting Jesus with this question here in Mark chapter 7. Another rabbi recorded later on nearly died while under Roman imprisonment because he was given water to drink and he used that water not to drink and stay alive but instead to cleanse himself from the uncleanliness that existed around him. Now let's remember these are additions to this is not the law of the Lord. These are, these are traditions that the elders had established that people began to practice. In Jesus' day, the idea of inner purity had been trivialized. Right? It had become more about externals and less about the condition of one's heart, which if we step back and we acknowledge this, we know that the law is intended to bring us to, right? The law is intended to bring us into a deeper awareness of our inability to maintain any type of consistency as it relates to observing it. Right? We are confronted within the law with our shortcomings, with our inability, with our need. Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians that the law is, in essence, a taskmaster, right? That takes us by the hand and walks us to Jesus. So while these external ideas, purity, inner purity, has been totally trivialized, the externals have been so emphasized. That without a doubt, if you don't even know the rest of the story, you would understand that a collision course between these ideals and Jesus is inevitable. And that's exactly what we see going on in verse 5. So let's look together now at verse 5. Verse 5, and the Pharisees 
And the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to, not the law of the Lord, but the tradition of the elders, eating with defiled hands? And he said to them, and this is about to get real. This is Jesus' mic drop right here. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as is written? And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 here. Now remember who he's talking to. These are big hitters from Jerusalem that have come down to address this issue with Jesus, to conspire against him, to seek to trap him. And this is Jesus' response to their question. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so again, Jesus is dragging this conversation from externals to internal. Right? He's taking it from external actions into the condition of one's heart. And he is condemning those before him in relation to their hardness of heart, the condition of their heart as uh, it relates to God. Verse 7, in vain do they worship me. What a powerful statement. You leave, he says, the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, I am kind of one who uh, prides myself on being able to read the tone of a room quite well. That's not yet um, uh, uh, something that you have, have brought into your own repertoire. It is something that is invaluable as you move forward being able to read the tone of the room. What's going on? What does it feel like? If we're reading the tone of the room here, it is undoubtedly um, increasing in tension. Right? Things are beginning to get tense. Consider the context here. Consider what, what Jesus says to these religious leaders in relation to the question that they have asked him. Jesus refers to their legalism. They're adding to the word of God as the commandments of men. An oral law that these men have equated with scripture and even obedience to their oral tradition to these externals has led to a rejection in some cases of the law of the Lord. And so they are deeming their tradition, they are deeming the laws of men as, as greater, as more authoritative than even the word of God. That's exactly what Jesus is addressing here. Now, this is a major shot across the bow from Jesus, okay? This is directed right at a heart of pride. This is directed right at a heart of hypocrisy, which we're going to see him unpack in just a few minutes. Big shot going across the bow here from Jesus. He says to them that they honor God with their outward actions, but that the center of their lives is not even close. That by implication, their hearts are far from God. Now, these are men who pride themselves on their position, their posture before God. We see other illustrations and other examples throughout, throughout the rest of the New Testament, right? We think about um, the Pharisee and the publican, 
right? Where you have this, this, this Pharisee, this religious leader, a guy similar to what we've got going on here, standing at the very center of the floor, right? Thanking God that he is not like those who are around him. Prideful, arrogant, while at the same time we see the publican, the crook, the scallywag, hanging out on the sides with his head bowed, just beating his chest, desiring grace and forgiveness. And Jesus here, Jesus here is driving the stake right into their hard hearts, that they are hypocrites, that they are phonies, that they're fakes. They believe themselves to be spiritually elite, but in all actuality, they are totally lacking. They're not even in the ballpark. They're not even playing the same sport as how far off base these guys are at this point. He continues on in verse 9, and it's here that their hypocrisy is brought front and center. Okay, and so if it has been implicit up until this point that these guys are hypocritical and that there are some serious issues that need to be worked out here, it's made explicit as we go into verse 9. Look there with me. He says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. And so this is exactly what we're talking about. The traditions of men right, have been, have been lifted up. They have been elevated to the point that they are now more important in terms of practice, practicality, implication than even the law of the Lord. He says that they have rejected the commandment of God in order to establish their traditions. Now, where does their hypocrisy come out? We understand at this point that Jesus has, has boiled it down to you've asked a really silly question. But now, how does their hypocrisy flow to the surface? How do we move from silly question to hypocrisy? Well, it's right here. Verse 10, what type of tradition are we talking about here? Well, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is that it's given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Here's one example, but we've got a myriad, a multitude of things that we could talk about here that relate to this extreme disconnect that is taking place. Jesus presses them Further, accusing them now of twisting God's word in order to avoid its authoritative implications. So what does that look like? Well, we see him reference the fifth commandment of God, in which God calls his people to care for their aging parents, to respect and to honor them, a truly weighty call. How can we say that? Well, because he says that to reject it is to bring about serious consequences, even death. They must surely die, verse 10. And so this is obviously a call that God takes seriously. He takes it seriously because it displays his care for people from beginning to end. Tradition, however, had made a way around this. And so what does this look like? What is this issue of Corbin that we're talking about here that brings to a, a, a negating of the obedience to the fifth commandment of God that Jesus is talking about here? 
Silly question. Okay, well now here's the one way that you are navigating around the authoritative implications of God's fifth command to his people in order to uh, make life easier on yourself, in order to avoid its practicality in your own life by saying that your possessions were given to God, you avoided what you might need to offer in order to care for your father and your mother. And so imagine this for a moment, right? Mom and dad, they're getting up there in age, right? And it comes time to begin caring for them, a situation that many of, some of you perhaps in this room are familiar with, right? And so it's time to begin caring for them. And as opposed to to stepping up and stepping out and caring for them and sacrificing and bringing them in and meeting their needs, ultimately displaying glory that is to be directed towards God, you say, well, listen, hate that I can't help you, but everything that I've got is Corbin. It's all dedicated to the Lord. And so, sorry, mom and dad, like, good luck, right? That's essentially what we're dealing with here. And this really ticks Jesus off. Okay, like this, he does not appreciate this, especially in light of these these second, third, fourth handed issues that are being brought to to the table by the religious leaders in this particular time and moment. In doing this, what do we see? Well, we see that these guys have not only twisted God's word, but as Jesus says, they have rejected it that they've rejected his testimonies, that they have rejected his word, they have rejected his law. The first part of this passage sets the stage for a deeper understanding of cleanliness while exposing those seeking to trap Jesus in front of this whole crowd. Jesus exposes their hypocrisy and thus encourages those listening in to avoid such practices themselves. And so what do we say together as a fellowship, man? Hypocrisy, not a desired character trait for God's people. Right? We, we want to avoid hypocrisy. We want to avoid into falling into the same ditch that these guys are finding themselves in at this particular moment. And so what is hypocrisy? We see it here, but how can we define it? I came across this past week a really, really, really helpful article uh, by an organization called the Gospel Coalition. We cite them a lot. We share resources from them a lot. If you don't read them currently or subscribe to them, I would encourage you to do so. They've been extremely beneficial, I think, for many of us as a fellowship, but they address within this article this, this, this issue of hypocrisy. And I want to read like a little excerpt here. Is that cool? Is everybody good? Let's give everybody a mind break for just a moment, and I'm going to read this. So follow along uh, with, me, with me here as I read. You don't have it, so just think, I guess. Okay, here we go. <laughs> hypocrisy, what is it? How can we define it? Hypocrisy is not the gap between doing and feeling. It is the gap between public persona and private character. These guys are so worried about public perception. Right? They're so worried about how they are seen by those um, within the community around them, as pious, as elite, as godly, as righteous. He continues on. Hypocrisy is the failure to practice what you preach, which correct me if I'm wrong, is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's correcting them. He's pointing this issue out for them. Appearing outwardly righteous to others while actually being full of uncleanliness and self-indulgence. That is the definition of hypocrisy. 
The hypocrite, they go on to say, is not the Christian who struggles against sin, fights against temptation, and keeps doing what is right even on his worst feeling days. That is a hero. The hypocrite is the Christian who uses the veneer of public virtue to cover the rot of private vice. That we've got it all together, that we're doing what we're supposed to do, that like we we are really like just knocking it out of the park around here, right? He is the man living a double life. The woman fooling her friends because she has church clothes. The student who proudly answers the questions in Sunday school and just as proudly romps through immorality the rest of the week. Listen to what they say here. The sin of hypocrisy is not that we are more messed up than we seem. That's true for all of us. We are all more messed up than we seem, right? Like, we all got problems. Okay, let's just be really honest with that right here, right? The sin is in using the appearance of goodness to cloak the deeds of evil. The sin is in thinking that that who others think you are matters a great deal more than who God knows you to be. And so we're confronted with this question as it relates to Christian hypocrisy. What are we most concerned about? Who are we most concerned about? Are we most concerned about what the world around would consider and say about who we are and what we have going on? Or are we most concerned with who God knows us to be, the things that we can't hide? from the one whom we cannot hide it from. Right? The, the hypocrisy of those that Jesus is addressing here is rooted in their self-exaltation, in their belittling of others, their pride, and in their arrogance. It is rooted in this idea that outward action brings about transformation of an inward condition, which is false, Right? Outward action does not equate necessarily with inward transformation, especially in relation to being made alive, especially in relation to issues of the heart. The deeds done, even out of an unclean heart, somehow impress God and merit his favor. That's not what we're talking about here. That's a, that's a straw man that collapses in on itself. It's, it's a house of cards. It desires more the approval and praise of men as opposed to acceptance and favor from the Lord. And it fails to express reliance on the Lord to bring about a new heart and in turn, God glorifying good works, externals that bring glory to God out of the overflow of a transformed heart. One commentator said this, if you haven't written anything down, man, write this down. This is great. When we believe we can demonstrate our righteousness through moral performance, we have forgotten the gospel. When we believe that we can demonstrate our righteousness through moral performance, we have forgotten the gospel. And so we deal with this issue of confrontation here in the beginning, and then we move on to correction. 
in verses 14 through 24, beginning in verse 14. And he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them. And so what we see here is like it sets the stage a little bit more clearly for us, that Jesus has been um, conversating with these religious leaders in this smaller circle, perhaps, and people are beginning to gather on the fringes. And isn't it beautiful that Jesus again calls those on the fringes unto himself? And he says to them, hear me, all of you, and understand that there is nothing outside of a person that by, do, by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. William Barclay calls this passage, this series of verses right here, the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. The religious leaders were equating righteousness with their practice of these traditions. And we've really hammered these guys quite hard up until this point. But I hope that as we're trekking along, we're, we're seeing how this relates oftentimes to our own thoughts, to our own perceptions, to our own actions, to our own beliefs. Good news, there's hope at the end, so don't feel too beat up because we're getting there. Jesus now calls the bystanders to gather in Close, and he introduces something that is indeed altogether different. What is it that makes a person clean or unclean? Well, it is not the outside things. It's not what you eat or drink or the ceremonial practices that you participate in. What really makes a person unclean is from within. It's this issue of the heart. And what comes out of a person is an overflow of what exists within their core, right? And it's one of those like what, what, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket type thing. Like it manifests itself in outward actions. We begin to, to really see how much work actually needs to continue in my life and in your life and our lives corporately when we screw up big time, right? We begin to see these things. They float to the surface periodically at specific points in time. He continues on in verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked, his disciples asked him about the parable. And so how are the disciples processing what's going on up until this point? Okay? They are so confused by what Jesus is talking about that they equate it with a parable. This is the same, they're equating it to the same thing as like casting seed on the ground. Like, what in the world are you talking about? That's how revolutionary this idea that Jesus has just presented to these people truly is. They're failing to grasp that it's not a parable. Their question, however, helps us to understand how the outside uh, outside of the box teaching of Jesus uh, really is, how, how, how countercultural it actually is. And he begins in verse 18 with what goes in the body. Verse 18, he says this, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters? Not the heart, which is the issue that Jesus is addressing here, but instead his stomach and then is expelled. We're super, super explicit at this point. The issue of cleanliness is directly related to the heart, okay? This issue of cleanliness is directly related to the heart, now, it would be further explained, this issue of all foods being declared clean, which we see in verse, uh, what is it, verse maybe, um, nine, is that 19? 
I've got a mark over it. I can't even tell what it, what it says. But he says this, uh, thus he declared all foods clean. He would further, this would further be explained in Acts chapter 10, verses 10 through 16, which some of us have been studying through on Thursday morning together as Peter is given a vision on top of Simon the Tanner's house in which all foods are declared clean. And then he is led off and he meets this family of Gentiles that gives their life to the Lord. And so it's ultimately an issue of, of people cleanliness, not even food cleanliness, which is a whole other thing. Go check out Acts chapter 10 later on um, and, and see how this continues to unpack itself. But then Jesus addresses what comes out of the body. Verse 20. And he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. You want to know what the human heart looks like? And the human heart is an idol factory, okay? And we see the overflow of the broken and corrupt and sinful hard heart being unpacked by Jesus here in verse 20. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, Jesus says, all of these things come from within, and they defile a person. This issue of washing your hands, man, it's so much more complicated than that. And it requires a much greater work than dipping one's hands into a bowl of water. This is how Jesus views the human heart apart from his grace. And this is a huge problem if you come into this room today and you believe that like people are just naturally within themselves, within their hearts, good. You're confronted with a major problem if you come in with that framework, right? Because here we see the true condition of the human heart being unpacked by the God-man, the King, Jesus. And it is not a pretty picture, is it? This is what Jeremiah says about the human heart. He says, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul writes this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so if we come into this room this morning, and again, our framework is that people are naturally in and of themselves Good, we don't understand the implications of the rebellion of man in Genesis chapter 3 and how that affects who we are today. We are indeed image bearers of God, right? The Imago Dei created in his image. But man, sin has corrupted the human condition, it has corrupted the human experience. And that's what we see Paul unpacking here. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. We, we leave a, a trail of destruction behind us, right? That's what we see here. Verse 17. And the way of peace they have not 
known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, the Pharisees' problem is, is ultimately a hard problem. And it revolves around this issue of, of poor theology of men and sin. And this is often our problem as well. Right? Content to deal more with symptoms of sin as opposed to the root cause itself. Making the outside of the cup clean becomes where we focus most of our energy and most of our efforts and most of our attention while neglecting altogether the death that resides within us. The human need is change, right? Our need to be changed. The answer to sin is not ultimately education. It is not ultimately culture. It is regeneration, okay? It is the resurrection, right? That is what we need more than anything else. John chapter 3, verse 3, our being born again. We must be made new. We must be made new. And so how does this happen? Well, we are, we are brought in through Christ. We are brought in through Christ. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, dwelling in Christ, one with Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. He continues on. It gets even better. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has Come. Our old selves have been buried, and we have been resurrected to newness of life through Christ, through his obedience. All of, the, all of the talk of the law this morning that we have seen, we are confronted again and again and again and again and again with our inability to keep the law. What we find in Christ is the righteous king who steps into his creation. He condescends. He makes himself of no reputation, becoming low, serving people, and living in perfect obedience to God's will. And then what does he do? He steps onto the cross, right? To be nailed there, to be killed, taking upon himself all of our uncleanliness. The issue of uncleanliness, man, we're talking about we're talking about a cleanliness that does not need to be washed away again and again and again and again and again. We're talking about a cleanliness that is eternal. We're talking about newness of life, resurrection, regeneration that is found in Jesus. Our greatest need, right? My greatest need and and your greatest need is the life of Christ. Our greatest need is the death of Christ. Our greatest need is the resurrection of Christ. This is what Jesus is leading them toward through this passage. And then we go into verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And so as we close our time, let us, let us ask ourselves a series of questions. What is your greatest concern? Right? What is your greatest concern? Is it what others think of you or what God thinks? 
What is most important to you, what others see or what God sees? And the good news for the people of God who are made alive through the gospel of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, is that as the Father looks upon his children who have been adopted into the family through the sacrifice of Jesus, is that he sees us as righteous, not because of what we have done, not because of what we can do, but because of who Christ is and because of what he has already done for us. How do you understand your presentability before God? Is it you? Is it what you're capable of doing? Is it what you have done, right? All the mission trips we've been on, right? All the people we fed, waters we fast out. Is that what is that what brings us into a posture, into a position of righteousness before the Father? No. No. It's just not. Okay, it's it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. But the uncleanliness that we possess as sinners flows from the heart and displays itself through our actions. Our heart is the issue. The gospel says that God has dealt with our uncleanliness as Christ has taken upon himself our uncleanliness, standing in our place as our substitute that we might be given new hearts. The good news of the gospel is that we are given a new heart through the work of Jesus. And so we, we come repentant. Right? We come repentant and joyful that we are indeed made alive through Christ. Jesus is the hero. That's why we gather together every week and we celebrate what he's done because it doesn't rest on us. Thank goodness. As we're confronted with our ability again and again, man, we realize how grateful we truly are that it doesn't rest on us, but it rests solely on the work of Jesus upon the cross. That he has bore the wrath of God due our sin in our place that we might become his children and now begin to live and the strength of the Spirit in line with how he would desire his people to live. So all of the issues of the heart that we see Jesus addressing there is transformed. Our hearts are made new. And the people of God celebrate that every week. It's the power of the resurrection, man. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for um, newness of life and regeneration. Thank you for the resurrection and its eternal benefits in our lives and and on our lives that we have a hope that is incorruptible in this world that we might continue to live mission for you and for your glory and for the good of our community and that when we become weary, we understand that you're indeed May strong, your strength is displayed through our weakness, that your strength is displayed through our weariness, and that we have an eternal hope upon which we look. That this is not the end, but this is simply this is simply the beginning, that there are resurrection benefits for this life and on into the next. And so we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We celebrate this morning the regeneration of our souls, the fact that our hearts can be made new that our hearts can be made new. We celebrate that this morning. And so make this real to us again as we approach the table this week, enjoying fellowship with you and fellowship with your people. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to go.